One of the greatest minds of the ancient world was Augustine of Hippo. He was born in the year 354 in Thagast, which today is Algeria. It was a Roman-occupied portion of Africa. He was raised as a Christian, and does anybody know his mother's name? Monica, which is my sister's name. Different person, though. Monica was a devout Christian, and she raised Augustine as a Christian. But, like many parents today experience, Augustine, when he became an adolescent and a young man, left the faith. He left Christianity to follow a religion that was, that was rather popular at the time, Manichaeanism. He was rather hedonistic. He and his friends would often brag about their sexual exploits. At one time during this time, he wrote a prayer that maybe some of you have heard. God, grant me chastity, but not yet. He had a concubine for 13 years whom he refused to marry, even though they had a son together. When he was 30 years old, he was given the most prestigious academic appointment in the world at that time. He became the professor of rhetoric for the imperial court at Milan. Just less than two years later, he was walking in a garden. There was a wall. He couldn't see to the other side, but he heard a child on the other side of the wall swinging and singing a song, Tola Lege, which is Latin, Take up and read. In that child's voice, Augustine was convinced God had spoken, that God himself was verbally speaking to Augustine through this child's voice. He was convinced that God himself, in that moment, the voice of God that had thundered the universe into existence, had spoken through the voice of a child and commanded him to find a Bible, open it, and read the first thing his eyes saw. He looked over and laying on a table was a Bible. He opened it and it opened to Romans chapter 13, verse 13, which was quite fitting for Augustine's life. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And in that moment, Augustine converted to Christianity. He gave his life to Christ. It's a remarkable story. It challenges our sophisticated modern sensibilities on a whole number of levels. Does God really speak? Can you really audibly hear God's voice? And if he does, does he use such arbitrary things as a child's play song? Does he use things like Scripture? Years later, Augustine insisted that this is indeed the case, that the living God speaks to us, and a primary way he speaks to us is through Scripture. 
In Augustine's very famous book, The Confessions, Augustine invented the autobiography. He wrote The Confessions. It was the first example of an autobiography in Western civilization. In The Confessions, he writes, The wondrous depth of your utterances, whose surface may indeed be flattering to the childish, but the wondrous depth, my God, the wondrous depth. It gives one a shudder to peer into it, a shudder of awe, and a tremor of love. What a remarkable image for Scripture that we can learn to hover over the Bible like the Spirit of God hovered over the chaotic mass in the beginning. We can learn to pray for that same Spirit that hovered over creation to hover over us and to illuminate the Word of God, the same Spirit that drove the authors of Scripture to write Scripture, that same Spirit not only fills Scripture, it can fill us. It can fill our heart. It can open our minds to see a depth in Scripture that is far deeper than the surface flutterings. The Bible, the Word of the living God, can be revealed to us and made intelligible to us through the very power of the very Spirit that created the universe. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been walking through the first chapters of the Bible, the first chapters of the book of Genesis, and we've seen that it is impossible to plumb their depths. We've seen it is impossible to exhaust all of the treasures of Scripture. This morning we turn to Genesis chapter 4 and 5. And may the God who hovered over creation hover now over us and open our eyes to see wonderful things in His Word. Turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived, and she bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of God. Now last week we looked at Genesis chapter 3. We saw how Adam and Eve were not obedient to God. They were obedient to the lie. So here they are, east of Eden, the shadow of sin, is growing even darker. There's a hint of pride in Eve's announcement. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. In fact, if you could read this in its original language in Hebrew, with the help of is not there. It's an interpolation. You need it to make sense of the sentence if you're translating it. I have gotten a man like the Lord. As the Lord did, with the help of God, Eve is ambiguous here. In plain English, I think what she's saying is this. God created a man, now I have created a man. I conceived, I labored, I gave birth. This man grew and emerged out of my own substance. This is pride. East of Eden, Adam and Eve are living within the gravitational field of that first sin. And sure enough, something is rather rotten in Denmark. 
Within a few verses, the son of Eve, who is her pride and joy, has killed his brother. They had both offered God a sacrifice, and God approved of Abel's sacrifice, but he had rejected Cain's. With Abel's gift, it was the firstborn of his flock and of the fat of their portions. Cain's gift, what was it? Well, the only way it's described is simply the fruit of the ground. Notice how these offerings are very different. Notice this is a masterpiece of literary restraint. Abel chose the firstborn of his flock. This is the best of his flock. And and of those, he gave the best portions of those. Abel brings the first of what is his. And what about Cain? All we know are two things. One, he merely gave of the ground. And two, he waited until the end of the days. That's literally what that phrase is in verse 3. In verse 3, in the course of time, literally, it's a euphemism, but on its literal level, it's the end of days. So he gave at the end. Abel gave first, up front, off the top, the very best. And in the restraint of the narrator, we get a sense of the difference in the two offerings. Abel put his heart and his life into his worship. But Cain was content merely to discharge his duty. Abel's desire was to gratify his creator, to honor him to the best of his ability. Cain's offering at best was indifferent. He gave of the fruit of the ground. See, the narrator, instead of telling you the difference, is inscripturating the difference in the way the literature flows. He's giving you a sense of the difference. So God goes to Cain, he speaks to him, he tells Cain, Cain's sin has a desire for you, it lusts after you with an animal hunger, it is the dark side of life, and Cain, if you submit to it, it will tear you apart. But you don't have to, Cain. You have not crossed the Rubicon. You don't have to give in. You can master this. You can obey me. You too, like Abel, can please me. But Cain doesn't. He yields instead of to God, to his jealousy, to his anger, to his resentment. And it grows into rage and he steps into that growing current of sin that is racing toward the disaster of death. And what began just a few verses before in wrongful eating now becomes a feast of death. The bond of the family that was so strong and clean and good and pure at the end of Genesis 2, and they were, Esther, help me here. I always mispronounce this word. They were naked and unashamed. Then at the end of Genesis 3, they're blaming each other. They're alienated from each other. And then in Genesis 4, family has gone a long way. fratricide, brother, killing, brother. The Bible is clear. This is the grievous, the most grievous thing a person can do to kill the image of God. The fruit of our forbidden tree has begun to fall. 
All of creation is dropping blindly into infinite space like a meteor that has torn itself away from its core to which it once belonged. This is a fallen world that continues to fall. So God goes to Cain again. The one who brought life into existence. He speaks to the one who has snuffed life out of existence. Where is Abel, your brother? But Cain gives an excuse. He attempts to deceive, to throw the hound of heaven off the scent. But it is impossible to silence the mighty voice. This is the voice that we already know can thunder a universe into existence. It cannot be silenced. The voice that said, let there be light, and there was light. The voice that said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fill the sky and let the earth bring forth living creatures. It is this voice that is interrogating Cain. No human being had seen what had happened. But the Lord saw. Nothing that you or I do or say or think can be hidden. Even if we go into a field far from habitation, nothing is hidden from the eyes of God who knows all, And calls all to account. And the legacy of sin continues to grow. Evil is flooding the earth. In Genesis chapter 4 verses 18 to 24. We get to the seventh generation of Adam. Seven in the Bible is almost always important. Who is the seventh generation from Adam? It's Lamech. Where Adam and Eve eat, Cain murders. Where Cain murders and pleads with God for mercy, Lamech murders and boasts of his deadly anger. The sin that with Cain was like a lion's whelp crouching at the door, with Lamech is aroused and roaring and walking about, seeking whom it may devour. Where Eve gloried in the fact that she had formed and given birth to a man, Lamech glories in the fact that he has cut off the life of a man. If God gave Adam one wife, Lamech will take two wives. If God would avenge Cain sevenfold, Lamech will avenge himself seventy-sevenfold. Where Cain's pride was revealed in his passive-aggressive statement, Am I my brother's keeper? Lamech's pride is revealed in a sheer boast of aggression. Lamech, the bigamist, is the vicious thug. The crazy, impossible idea that disobeying God can lead to life. This This foolish notion that began with a tasty fruit and the the desire for life on our own has grown into a flood tide of death. So in verse 25 of Genesis 4, Eve, having lost both of her sons in one day, she's no longer boastful. The fact that Cain, her pride and joy, murdered Abel. Cain, the pride of his mother, has humbled Eve. This time, 
There's no I have gotten a man. This time she feels only gratitude in the birth of Seth. Seth, unlike Cain, is a gift. A gift from beyond, precious and unmerited. Tragedy has humbled parental pride. Adam and Eve no longer stand there as claimants upon the world. Now they are grateful recipients of a blessing of new life. And then in chapter 5 and 10, identically crafted paragraphs. We get the lineage of Adam, not through Cain, but through the gift of Seth. And the seventh generation of this line is very different than Lamech. The seventh matters. No, this time the seventh generation is Enoch. In Genesis 5.22, he walked with God. The first time the ten identical paragraphs has changed in its formula. Enoch walked with God. What does it mean that he walked with God? It means exactly what it images. When was the last time somebody walked with God? Adam and Eve in the garden. God would walk with them in the cool of the day. Finally, it's happening again. To walk with God, it's the image of intimacy, of piety, of obedience, of holiness, of righteousness. And Enoch wasn't unusual. We see in, a, in, in the next chapter that Noah walked with God. And we see a few chapters later that Abraham walked with God. And we see a few chapters after that that his son Isaac walked with God. And later on we discover that the priests walk with God. And in Micah 6, 8, what does God command of all of us? To walk humbly with our maker. You see, you can be holy. Like Cain, you have a choice. We live in a culture that glories in the bottom line. I'm a sinner like you. But we don't have to be that way. We can be righteous. Like Abel, we can please God. Like Abel, we can honor God. Like Enoch, we can walk with God. We don't have to settle for the shadow of sin. The same voice of God that called galaxies beyond number and microbes beyond notice into existence. The voice of God that called Augustine to himself and Augustine walked away from his sin. That same voice of God is calling you and me to holiness. And Hebrews 11 says there's a whole raft of examples of people who in faith in Christ have done it. We live in a culture that wants to wipe out Enoch's legacy. I love Genesis 5.24. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. There's really a play on words here. In verse 22, he walked with God. In verse 24, he walked with God. But it's different. The walking with God in verse 24 is not about the intimacy of living a life with God here and now. It is about the fact that those who walk with God in this fallen world will experience life, not death, as the last word. Enoch walks with God now. 
fullness of life is found only in the presence of God. And then in verse 25, we get another Lamech. Oh, but this Lamech, he's different. This Lamech is following not in the shadow of sin. He's following in the shadow of Enoch. This Lamech doesn't yield to the flood tide of evil. He rests in the promise of God. He trusts in God. He obeys God. He gives himself to God's promise of deliverance. Lamech, the grandson of Cain, his song was a song of defiance. But Lamech, the grandson of Seth, his song, was a song of peace. Genesis 5:28 When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the t- painful toil of our hands. This is the gospel announcement. Do you see it? It's there. Beneath the surface, God never gave up on Cain. That's the double entendre of the mark. The mark was Cain. You are in deep trouble. But I have not removed my hand of protection from you. God never gave up on Cain. He never lost his interest, even though Cain had murdered his image. And you and me, living east of Eden... With all of the sin and the pride and the anger and the jealousy and the violence that fills us with our lives torn apart by the vicious, insatiable appetite of sin, God has not given up on us. And notice what Noah says. Our deliverance will come From the very ground that has been cursed. Not only has God refused to abandon his good intentions for the earth. But God has refused to give up his good intentions for you and me. And the help we so desperately need. It will come from the ground. In Genesis 5.1, Moses begins the biography of Adam. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And years later, Matthew begins his biography of the last Adam. This is the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. And we saw in Luke's genealogy that when Luke goes to tell the story of Jesus, he too gives a generation, a, a genealogy. And this genealogy goes back through Enoch through Seth, to Adam. And indeed, when we read the story of this Jesus Christ, we see that he will make the reach of Lamech's sword, 70 times 7. Jesus will make that the reach of his mercy. How many times should we forgive? 70 times 7. You think Lamech's Anger and vengeance was extensive, was uncalled for, was extravagant. My mercy, my grace is that extensive, that extravagant, that uncalled for. But even more beautiful. After 33 years, 
a new tree was planted in the ground, a new tree of life. There was also a tree of death. And on this second tree of life, the Creator God Himself was hanged. And when He was sown into the cursed ground, out of the ground came rest and life. With his resurrection from the cursed ground, from the place of the curse, God has not given up on us. God has indeed brought us rest and we can be forgiven for our sins and we can turn in faith to the true God, to the one who did not yield his life to the serpent's temptation, to the one who yielded his life in perfect obedience to the Creator God. If you are like Cain, if you are like Lamech, yield to the voice of God. It is your only chance. Do you see the hideous and sure cost of sin? God's word is true. What he says comes to be. You taste of the forbidden fruit. You will reap a feast of death. Do you see the price that you will surely pay when you open the door to the sin that is crouching? It is crouching not to offer you goodness. It is crouching to devour you. And do you also see the beautiful, and surprising gift of redemption, the wondrous death. My God, the wondrous death. It gives us a shudder to peer into it, a shudder of awe and a tremor of love. Let's pray.